I'm going to be reading from Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. This is, of course, the Apostle Paul writing this. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of a reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also in the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Father, these events that we're reading up here are long ago among people that we've never met, talking about obscure things in some ways as we read it. But Lord, we know that your Spirit has given us this record for our benefit. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the significance of what was taking place on this occasion. That the Apostle Paul felt so strongly that the gospel was at stake. And so we ask, Lord, that for the glory of your name and for the clarity of seeing your agenda... Further, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes of our hearts, that we might understand this passage of your word, and you might use it to unify us and to give us freedom in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. It's obvious in the last few moments that handshakes are a rather common form of greeting in our culture. We shake hands with people all the time, don't we? However, some handshakes are memorable. Some handshakes, you could actually say, are historical. I'm thinking of one particular day on Palm Sunday, April the 9th, 1865, in the parlor of a farmhouse in Appomattox uh, Courthouse, Virginia. Two men, General Ulysses, Ulysses S. Grant, the commander of the Union Army, and General Robert E. Lee, the commander of the Confederate Army, approached each other and extended their arms and then shook hands. It was a gesture of goodwill. It was a gesture of peace, symbolizing the cessation of years of fighting. General Lee then proceeded to sign a letter of surrender that General Grant 
had composed by hand. And with these simple gestures, the horrors of the bloodshed between the states came to end. Now we find here in the second chapter of Galatians another interesting, I would call it historical, handshake. Look there at verse 9. James and Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and John gave to me, that's Paul, and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now most of us, when we read that, we think to ourselves, no big deal, why is this in the scriptures? But from the Apostle Paul's perspective, this gesture of goodwill had tremendous significance as far as the gospel of grace is concerned. And so I'm going to raise the question for us to think about this morning and to try to explore answers to these questions. Why include this gesture in the pages of Scripture? Of what significance is this sign of peace and goodwill between apostolic leaders in Jerusalem and two missionaries who were working among a Gentile population? Well, the answer I would suggest to you is found, again, in this theme that is being developed by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians here, because Paul is passionate about, and this is what he's doing in these first two chapters, he is passionately defending the gospel of grace alone against those who are trying to undermine his authority, who are trying to undermine and distort the message that he had already given to these churches in Galatia that he had proclaimed, and properly understood and properly practiced the gospel of grace alone is to bring about two very important consequences or results. Number one, it is meant to, if we understand it properly, it's meant to unify people who are followers of Jesus. It's also meant to liberate the followers of Jesus. So those are my two main points today. Fairly easy, I hope you can follow along. The first point, the gospel of grace unifies. Now I've read this passage a number of times in my adult life, And only recently have I begun to see and understand the significance of what Paul is trying to convey in this biographical section of his epistle in Galatians 2. He starts off by mentioning that 14 years later, that is 14 years after his conversion, we would understand, the early church faced a monumental problem. Virtually all of the converts in the early converts to Christianity, before Paul's ministry, were circumcised Jews, or Jews who were following the laws, the Levitical laws, as found in the books of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so you'll think of an example of this would be the sermon that Peter proclaimed on Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, was directly aimed at whom? It's aimed at a Jewish audience. If you look at Acts chapter 2, I've noticed twice in that sermon, he uses the phrase, house of Israel. He's speaking to Jews who had been gathered actually at that occasion for Pentecost from all over the known world. And from this large crowd of Jews that had gathered there, it says 3,000 were converted on that day. Now, if you fast forward from that occasion, which was soon after, as I said, 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, 20 years later, 15 years later, whatever it was, you got the time when the primary opponent of Christianity in the meantime is Saul the Pharisee, and he's dramatically 
converted and changed because of the encounter he has with Jesus Christ. And so Saul, later known as Paul, is told on that occasion in Acts 9 that he was Jesus' chosen instrument to bear his name before what? The Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. So here is a moving in a direction now away from a Jewish audience to now people who are non-Jews, also called Greeks. And sure enough, Paul is dramatically transformed and he stops trying to destroy Christ's followers and he begins proclaiming the gospel of grace to the regions of Asia Minor. And as a result of his ministry, guess what? Non-Jews, that is, non-circumcised Gentile converts are added to the church. What a wonderful development. However, it is at this point that this right hand of fellowship is such a significant event. It takes on huge significance at this juncture in early church history. Verse 9 now, chapter 2. When Paul and Barnabas, the evangelists who had gone to these Gentile areas and who had seen now the gospel come into those areas and beginning to come to faith in Christ, they're meeting up now in Jerusalem with the leaders of those who were headquartered there in Jerusalem, who primarily were conducting ministry among Jewish population. And what did they do? They extended the right hand of fellowship. They welcomed these two missionaries, these two partners in gospel ministry, and they affirmed, we are on the same gospel page together. It is, there are not two churches of Jesus Christ. We are one together in fulfilling Jesus' mandate to take the gospel to all nations. And that's why Paul digressed there in the verses he gets into 7, 8, and 9 in this text. Despite, letter B, despite their different callings and the fact that they targeted different audiences by utilizing a different methods probably in their approach uh, if, you, if you make an approach to minister to someone who's Jewish in background, you just quote a lot of Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures. Paul may have not done as much of that when he's trying to minister to people who don't have that background, don't understand, don't, aren't familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. So they had different methods in their specialized ministries. However, these men were united on one thing, the gospel of grace alone. They're on the same page. There's no division here between them. And that's why it's very important that we affirm today the gospel of grace unifies and unites those who are saved by grace through faith alone. And the gospel is the power of God, Paul said in Romans 1, it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew as well as to the non-Jew, to the Gentiles. And the gospel of grace unites believers around the essential truth that all of us have no hope of gaining approval before God on the basis of our performing good works. We are united together in understanding that there is only one gospel of grace. We're united in one unchanging message. And we are united in applying that one gospel of grace to every people group in this world. Utilizing, I'm sure, many different approaches as to how to effectively communicate to all these differing groups. 
Clearly, as we think about reaching uh, the Muslim population that Dave alluded to earlier, you're going to take a different approach with them than you are to someone who's an atheist, to someone who is a a, a Sikh background or someone who is a a Muslim or whatever. It's all different approach, but you're going to still eventually try to proclaim to them the one gospel of grace alone. Now, here's an example. If you compare Peter's sermon... Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. He is, he is preaching and proclaiming the gospel. He is proclaiming to whom? He's preaching to a monotheistic Jewish population. He speaks to them in a, pro, a certain reproach. And then you compare that with Paul's sermon preached on Mars Hill, Acts chapter 17, to a polytheistic Gentile population. They are entirely different sermons. Same gospel, same mission, same goals, but different approach. Now let me just say something very clearly here. There is no such thing as competing gospels. And that was the significance of the right hand of fellowship. That's the significance of this handshake that took place among these leaders. If you look at verses 7 to 9, both groups of apostles were reunited and proclaiming the same gospel of grace. That's what he's saying in those verses. Verse 6, God shows no partiality. Both gospel ministries among diverse people groups shared the same core commitments. The only way to be declared right with God is on the basis of grace and not on the basis of good works, period. So that's the first area of, of commonality and, and unity. I would suggest to you that it's also interesting to think about the unity of the gospel of grace in another sphere, and that is that the, the gospel of grace unites followers of Jesus around the glories of redeeming grace. Think about grace for a moment, how, how amazing it is we can find forgiveness together because of the gospel. The gospel of grace unites believers regardless of our past. Or, if you could say, our former sinful reputations. Let me just review back to an interesting passage. Take your Bible, find Acts chapter 9. Could you do that for a second? Acts 9, page 1307. Pew Bible. This is the chapter in which we find the Pharisee Saul having a dramatic conversion. He becomes, uh, in his, we call him Paul because that's his Roman name. He's trying now to, to use that name as a, someone that can minister better to a non-Jewish audience. Look at what happened. Now, you remember Paul's background. Saul's background was he's a persecutor of the church. He was someone who was harming, imprisoning, and hurting, and, and persecuting followers of Jesus. Then he was saved. And now look what we read here. We read here verses 26-27 of Acts 9. When Paul had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples. That's a good thing to do, right? If you're a Christian, you want to have fellowship. (laughs) You you, you ought to be associating with disciples. And they were all, what? Afraid of him. Now, is that surprising? No. I mean, they had reason to be afraid of this guy because they knew his reputation. They knew his passion his extremism, his radicalism in order to, is to destroy Christianity and Christians in general. So they were afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. 
I just sort of wrote in my thought here, no surprise there. I'm not surprised that that's happening. Okay, now watch this. Next phrase. But Barnabas took hold of Saul or Paul and brought him to the apostles. I love that. I love that. What's he doing here? Barnabas understood that the gospel unites sinners who are saved by grace, regardless of our pasts. Barnabas was an agent of unifying grace. What a beautiful agent he was. As members of the family of God, we are to be like Barnabas, I would suggest to you. We are to extend our arms of love to everyone who repents, turns from their sin, turns from their sinful lifestyle, and they believe on Christ alone for salvation, we are to extend the right hand of fellowship and welcome them to our family, no matter what their background is, if they truly repent and are truly trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And so I say this to you, let it be known, this church welcomes all former homosexuals or lesbians, former drug addicts, former criminals, former Muslims, former gang members, former anybody. Because the gospel unites us together. I don't care what your background is. You say, well, I don't know. That seems pretty radical, what you're saying there. I mean, come on. I feel a little uncomfortable with that. You're talking about welcoming my family. Okay, well, turn to Acts, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6. What did Paul say there? 1 Corinthians 6, he notes that some of the members of the church there in Corinth used to be fornicators, People having sex outside of marriage, idolaters, adulterers, people who are married having sex outside of that marriage, effeminate, which is a, uh, a, a person who was involved in homosexuality as a sort of a, uh, a person that's been trained to be a, a fem- effeminate party of that particular union, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, but they were washed, they were sanctified. They were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. And so I say to you, my friend, as Philip Ryken has a very good quote in your notes there, there are no second-class Christians. Period. What does that say? It says, my friend, that the same grace that saved me It's the same grace that saves people who have all kinds of brokenness in their backgrounds. It's the grace that we need to celebrate that unites us together, what? At the level ground, at the base of the cross. I think of the story, I know I've used this illustration before, I'm going to use it again because it's so powerful. Corrie ten Boom. The Dutch woman understood the power of this unifying dynamic of the gospel of grace. Corey and her sister and other members of her family were arrested by the Nazis during the Holocaust because they had been concealing, members of their family, they'd been concealing Jews in their home during the occupation there in Holland. And years after the Holocaust, now it's all over, the war's done, and here is Corey ten Boom speaking in a church in Munich, Germany. And she saw one of the former guards of the Ravensbrück concentration camp, there in attendance. 
And it was that same guard where so many other people had been brutalized. She recognized him. She had seen him there. It was on an occasion when he was the guard along many others, and they were filed by these guards as they leered at them. She and her sister walking naked, totally humiliated. And he was one of those guards standing there. And it was the first time since she had been released that she came face to face with one of her captors. And so this heavy-set, balding man walks up to her after her message was done and she had spoken there. He stands in front of her and he says, A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. You see, I, I was a guard there, but since that time I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. And so he extends his hand toward her. And he continues, he says, will you forgive me? She just stood there. How could she forgive him? Her sister Betsy had died in that horrible place. It's probably only a few seconds that the man is standing there with his arm extended like this. But to her it seemed like hours. And she wrestled with the most difficult thing she'd ever had to do. So she silently prayed, Jesus, help me. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, she thrust out her hand and she shook hands with this former guard, saying to him, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. My friend, that is the unifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's what happened in this occasion. Think about it. Here is Saul being welcomed by Peter and all these guys who were running to the hills to get away from this guy. It's a beautiful picture here in this handshake, the greeting them, extending the hand of fellowship. There are no second-class Christians. Praise God. Let me suggest another angle of this idea of unity in the gospel of grace. It also will unify believers despite our differing cultural backgrounds, despite our different economic status that we might enjoy. And here I think of the idea of Titus, who's a member now of this group of people there in Jerusalem. And here's Titus. He wasn't raised to observe all these Levitical laws. He's not consumed with appropriate food preparation and all the regulations on the Sabbath, whatever. He didn't follow any of those things. And here he is showing up with Paul and Barnabas. I love it. He's totally different, has no background in all these things. And the church in Jerusalem was facing this important, confronted with an important issue. Would Titus be welcomed? Would he be accepted as the same as everybody else? And gospel unity calls us to avoid now adding all these extra requirements to make sure somebody meets all the standards to make sure before we begin to have fellowship with them. Some people like to add to the gospel, you've got to be baptized. 
Other people add you've got to be a member of a church in order to have any kind of true fellowship or somehow uh, understand the true gospel. Some people think you've got to abstain from alcohol. And that's the only reason they'll ever know if you're really a Christian, if you do X, Y, and Z, or you have to wear a certain dress code. You can't wear pants. Women can't wear pants or whatever. People have all these rules and regulations. Can't, can't uh, have, enjoy certain forms of entertainment. If you do, therefore we know you're not a Christian. Watch out for all these rules. The church in Jerusalem is faced with that issue. And what did they do? Extend the right hand of fellowship. He's one of us. We welcome you to the kingdom. I find it also interesting that not only just the cultural backgrounds, that we tend to also have lots of rules and regulations. But notice also that Paul, who I'm convinced probably grew up in a fairly well-to-do home. He had one of the most advanced and privileged forms of education of anybody of his time. He studied under Gamaliel, one of, the leading, one of the leading rabbis of the day. So I think he went to a pretty exclusive school of his day. And he'll, here, is, here is Paul. He understands the gospel also compels believers to share in the needs of people who are not like him, people who are poor. Now, not because we are required to in order to be a Christian. I don't think that Jesus' comments to the rich young ruler, you've got to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, as if that is a requirement that everybody has to do in order to become a Christian. I don't think that's Jesus is dealing with the particular idol in that guy's heart. But what he is saying here is, he's saying that because we are concerned for the poor, we do so and become concerned for the poor, because what? Because that's the heart that God has. God has a heart for the poor. And therefore, we're sort of taking on things that he's concerned about. That becomes our concern as well. You don't think God's concerned for the poor. Let me encourage you to write down a couple of these verses. You can look at them later. But 1 John chapter 3 Verses 16 and 17 are absolutely clear. You can't just talk about being concerned about somebody in, in financial need or, or uh, physical shortages. You have, we need to do something about it. And also Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 and 8 are just powerful verses in terms of God's concern that we manifest the thought of the gospel changing our hearts, of the gospel of grace is to be then making us into gracious people who have the fruit of grace and concern and compassion for those who are struggling. Let me make an important clarification here, though. There's a strong movement underway now in which some people, in their attempts and their zeal to emphasize God's concern for the poor, I feel like have maybe seen the pendulum go far too uh, off, out of balance, and they've begun to say that the gospel is helping the poor, period. That is the gospel in some people's minds. And that's what it's all wrapped up in. It's all horizontal. The gospel is just doing things for people who are in need. My friend, that's not the gospel. I would argue that helping the poor is the necessary result of the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here. I'm certainly concerned. I certainly want to participate I am concerned about the gospel because why? Interesting, interesting enough, Paul, as missionary to the Gentiles, is being asked now to realize that the predominantly Jewish population in the Jerusalem area, they're the ones facing financial need. Can you help us out? And he's saying, absolutely, I'm there with you, man. We're going to do what we can to help you out. The early church assigned people to help attend to the needs of widows and the poor, Acts 6. 
Years later, Paul urged the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20 that he would be sure to help out those who are weak, the powerless, indeed the poor. And so I raise the question again, is your heart impacted by the grace of God in the gospel? That you're drawn toward a compassionate response to people who find themselves among the poor and the needy. Now, I'm not saying that you need to make sure that you just hand them money. Okay, there are different ways to help the poor and needy. Uh, sometimes money can be the worst way we help people because we're not getting involved in their life and we're not trying to help deal with the underlying problems as to why they're poor. But the question is, is your heart inclined to people around you who face shortages and they're different in their status than from where you are? Or are you insulated and are you removed from people who truly are needy and you want nothing to do with them? So you ask yourself, has the gospel of grace so changed my heart that I am inclined, I'm concerned, I really want to be somehow involved in doing something for somebody else because God has so blessed me with his grace. I want to be a giver, not just a receiver. There's an amazing encounter there in Jerusalem years ago, an extending of that right hand of fellowship. It, it speaks of a gospel that unifies. I want us to move now to a second point here, just quickly to talk about, yes, while the gospel does unite believers with strong bonds of grace, the gospel also, point number two, it also liberates. Look at verse four in Galatians 2. It was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. What an interesting term Paul uses here to describe these individuals. He calls them false brethren. I believe he chose the word brethren because... They're claiming to be Christians. They're talking about the cross. They talk about Jesus, Messiah, whatever. So they're claiming to be Christians. But because they taught that faith in Jesus Christ alone was not sufficient to gain acceptance before God, and they insisted on keeping the law to become or to remain fully justified before God, they made it clear in making that additional requirement that they are not true adherers to the gospel of grace. They did not enjoy the freedom that Jesus provides on the basis of grace. And so these sham Christians wormed their way into the churches there in Galatia, and they conducted what one commentator called, and I thought this was a great word, covert operations. They're sneaking in, they're spying, they don't want to really make it very clear what they're doing, undercover covert operations like an undercover agent. So here they are sneaking in to the church, insisting that in order to be a true Christian, quote-unquote, you've got to perform certain requirements of the law, and you've got to become a Jew. That's what they were saying, essentially. And this teaching began to influence many of the early believers, and it was doing what? Holding them hostage to the law. They became now very fixed on the fact that I've got to do X, Y, Z. I've got to do them 30 times a day. I've got to do all these things in order to make sure I am a Christian. Let's be very clear here. 
based on this verse 4, anyone who adds requirements of performance to the basis of becoming a Christian, even noble things like giving to the poor, or adding things like getting baptized or joining a church and becoming a member of church. If you add those things to the gospel, then you must be seen as a person who is an enemy of the true gospel of grace alone. When you insist on adding requirements that we must perform certain things to gain right standing with God, it will destroy the spiritual freedom that Jesus has already provided to us because of his death and his resurrection. We are, we are free in the sense that we don't have to do all these things in order to gain our right status with God. And when you assist and say, yes, you do have to do X, Y, Z, then you've all of a sudden put a big shackle on that person and said, you don't have any freedom. You've got to keep doing, 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 doing. While appearing to be like-minded cohorts in Christ, these people that Paul describes in verse 4, they're actually enemies of freedom. And so Paul does what? What was his response to them? Did he walk up and say, hey guys, we're all on the same page, right? No, he resisted them, and we are to do the same. Like Paul, we are to be, letter B in your notes, we are to be freedom fighters. We fight for our freedom in Christ. No one is to take that away. We are called to defend the gospel from those who compromise the message. And some people today compromise the gospel by not just adding things to it, but some people like to take things away from the gospel. So some people in today's world proclaim a gospel that is completely uh, sanitized, if you will, from any mention of offensive elements like eternal punishment in hell. Or for those who refuse to repent and those who refuse to believe in Jesus alone. People also will take a gospel and they'll say, oh, wait a minute, you know, you can't be so narrow-minded and insist that somehow the gospel is going to deny the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way of salvation. Surely there are other people who will someday wake their, make their way into the kingdom. Surely the, you know, the heaven is broad enough to accept those people. That's not the true gospel, my friend. We need to be careful that there are people out here who are, out here who are going to create a spiritual shackle by insisting that our relationship with God be based on keeping up our moral behavior to a certain standard. And man, I'll tell you, they'll put you right into chains. They'll shackle you up like being in a straitjacket. And Christianity becomes what? No more relationship. It's regulations, regulations, regulations. I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. That's not the gospel. Not the gospel of grace alone. And so I'll end with this quote from the helpful proclaimer, Tim Keller. Here we go again. He says this. If someone is emphasizing you keep on following all these moral behaviors in order to have a relationship with God, he says this leads to an endless treadmill. Have you ever lived on a treadmill of Christian Christianity where you get distorted and somehow this false teaching is somehow taken over your thought? You get into a treadmill of guilt and insecurity. However, we are free from the law as a system of attaining our salvation. We obey not in the fear and insecurity of hoping to earn our salvation, but in the freedom of, and security of knowing that we are already saved in Christ. We obey in the freedom of gratitude.
for all that Christ has done, all that Christ has accomplished. It comes to us, we receive it by faith, it comes to us on the basis of grace alone. Can we shake on that? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, my heart is heavy today for many of us who find ourselves on a treadmill. Treadmill of performance, a treadmill of guilt, treadmill of insecurity. Because somehow along the way, some false brother may have suggested to us that we're not doing enough. We haven't jumped through enough hoops. We haven't accomplished X, Y, Z well enough to feel like we're worthy to somehow be accepted by you. Oh, Father, how I pray that you would take your word, the true gospel of grace alone, and I pray, Father, by your Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts that we might know what it is to be free in Christ, free from this heavy burden of trying to become a better person, of doing all the right things to somehow think we can enjoy a relationship with you. Lord, set us free with the gospel, free to welcome other people who are far different from us, free to welcome people who have pasts that are highly questionable to us and make us feel quite uncomfortable. Lord, use your gospel to free us to be a a people who are welcoming and concerned for people far different than us, who might have far more complex challenges and daily needs than we've ever had to face in our lives. But Lord, I pray that you would unite us around the gospel of grace. And in such union, Lord, we would be not content to leave it to ourselves, but Lord, it would give us a passion to go and share that same gospel of grace to so many others, Lord, who don't have a clue what it means to know you on the basis of grace. How wonderful and how glorious and how amazing is the gospel of grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give our hearts a greater burden for those around us who are on this treadmill. We've just heard of some even earlier in the service today, Lord. People who are in false religions who are on that treadmill trying to somehow perform adequately, but knowing full well they are falling short and they don't know if they'll ever make it. Father, free up our hearts, we pray, to swallow our pride to roll up our sleeves, to get involved in the lives of people around us and to extend the right hand of concern to other people. To reach out to them, Lord, with your hands, the hands of the gospel, and that we might be a people who are a welcoming people because the grace of Christ has changed our hearts and given us a love for those who need to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.